Welcome to another episode of At Home with Leaders, this mini-series part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute. Thanks for rejoining us to the regular listeners and of course welcome and hello to those listeners for the first time. Our aim with these conversations is to shed some light on what the top people within higher performance are doing now and have done through lockdown and what they're planning to do in the future when sport returns to our lives. Alongside me once again is founder and CEO of Gaines Group and my colleague in California, it's Mr. Steve Gira. How are you this morning, Steve? I'm well, Matt. Good to uh, good to be on here with you again and glad to have our guest here. Um, it's definitely crazy days and it feels like we need sport now more than ever. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's also exciting to see that we're getting closer to restarting a number of them. Absolutely. Well, um, our guest today is one of the top thinkers in high performance based here in Europe, and he's currently the performance director of the Lawn Tennis Association. And in the summer, he'll become yet another star signing up at Manchester City at Simon Timpson. Simon, how are you today, sir? I'm good, thanks, Matt. Um, hi, Steve. Looking forward to uh, a good chat. And the good news is, you know, we're kind of 10 days away from live Premier League football again here and only two weeks away from the first pro tennis tournament behind closed doors so uh, yeah sport is nearly back on our screens and in front of us so I think we're all looking forward to that. Absolutely we are edging closer fingers crossed. How are you how are you how's your work set up like Simon? Um, I know you've been back a little bit uh, and forth in Roehampton at HQ but are you, are you currently at home how have you been uh, approaching this working from home environment? Yeah mo- most of us are, are working from home it's about three weeks now since we managed to reopen the National Tennis Centre for the elite players to trickle back into training. And we started off with only half the courts open so we could socially distance really easily uh, and get the players and their coaches used to operating in a, in a different way. Because you know, like most sports, you know, fist pumps between points or drills is you know, commonplace hugs on the court. You know, coaches and, and players are just generally tactile and want to interact. And we suddenly find ourselves in an environment where that's not okay right now. So we need to, to get them used to coming into the building, a one-way system, space between the courts. Almost we introduce like technical zones for coaches. So like they have at the side of the football pitch. So coaches would know to keep their distance at the side of the court from one another because both players would come in with a coach and the players would know to keep their distance. And, and, and that stuff just took a bit of time to bed down and work out. And I think the feedback from the players has been great. They've really appreciated that despite the fact you can play tennis anywhere outdoors in the UK now, they know they're coming into the safest, most controlled environment possible where their risk of contracting COVID is absolutely minimised. This week, we've been able to move on to stage two training in small groups so we can play doubles again, you know, even start to think about some squads potentially training. We've opened up all the courts because people are used to the new, new ways of working. We've opened up the gym for the first time. Yeah, we've opened up the medical suite too so we can start to think about actually providing some hands-on treatment, which players haven't had for probably 10, 12 weeks now. And I don't think we can underestimate just how much it will mean to players to have hands-on treatment again and the, the reassurance of that for an elite athlete. You know, if they've got a twinge, if they've got a niggle, or even if they've picked up an injury, just 
being able to have someone's hands on them again, knowing that they're going to get better as quickly as they can, I think will make a big difference for everybody. Simon, that, that's a really great breakdown on, on how you guys are addressing um, the return to play um, scenario here. How did, how did you guys um, end up essentially coming to um, a lot of those different protocols? Were you, were, how much coordination were you making with, you know, governing bodies in tennis? How, I mean, you guys are a governing body in tennis, but um, with other, with other entities and how much, how much like global coordination has there been um, in the sport? As people probably know, tennis is quite a, a fractured sport in terms of its international governance. You know, you've got the, the men's tour, led by the, the ATP, the Women's Tour, led by the WTA, the International Tennis Federation running the pro events that happen below the three levels within WTA and ATP. Then you've got the National Federation, you've got the four Grand Slams. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a complex international picture. But in a way, COVID simplified all that. You know, it created a will to work together between WTA, ATP, there's even been merger talks or talk of mergers between the two, uh, the ITF and the four Grand Slams. And, and their response has been fantastic. You know, they've announced a huge player relief fund. And then at a domestic level, we've been working really closely with government. And the LTA has been at the forefront of that. I, I sat on the working group that designed the return to training guidance for sports and negotiated that with our government department that's responsible for sports. Um, I, so I, I dealt with stage one to two, and then I handed that seat at the table over to Stephen Farrow, our major events director, as so they started to look at return to competition. So it's been a huge amount of behind the scenes work that I don't think athletes and coaches generally see, just to get to the point where we could open the National Tennis Centre again and, and players could walk back on court. And there are pages and pages of guidance from, from government that we have to meet. So the first stage really was to understand what that meant for us and how we met that guidance. And, and particularly in an environment where government at the same time as publishing that said, you can go and play singles with anyone you want to. So anybody anywhere in the country can walk onto a tennis court and play singles. So, you know, you've got a player saying, well, hang on, why can't we come straight back to the NTC? And we're going, well, it's a bit different for us. We want to make sure that, you know, we've done everything we can to minimize your risk and you've got the safest possible environment. Whereas for like, say football, the only teams that can go back and train are the professional teams. You can't just go and play football anywhere. So the context for tennis has been really complex in a huge amount of time. I've spent just trying to unpick with my senior team what it means for us, how we get the protocols right for the players and personal coaches to come back in, our staff to come back in. Even the regulations for people that we employ are different to those for the personal coaches of players that we don't employ and who our medics are and are not indemnified to sign off health declarations for or administer tests to and all of that stuff it's it's been a real challenge it's been it's been a good one and i've enjoyed it i think we've all learned a huge amount and we probably realize how much now sports at the forefront of, of health because a lot of the public health guidance that we've been hearing for the last 15 weeks or so is, is the stuff that sports been doing for 15 years. Regularly washing your hands, sanitizing your equipment, minimizing the risk of infection. You know, that, that's, that's stuff that's normal to us. That's, uh, that, that's great. And you're right. That's something that, you know, broader industries and, and, and other people can definitely learn from sports. You're, you're also, you've spent a lot of your time across, across your career going out to other industries and uh, and learning from them, you know, I still remember sitting down and having a meal and a beer with uh, you and your mate um, who worked at uh, a pilot from uh, British Airways, 
And like, so how much, aside from government and your connections and, and trying to learn how people were adapting and thinking about post-COVID bounce back plans, um, were, were you looking at other industries and other um, entities and trying to, uh, trying to gleam off a few, uh, a few tips and a few things that you could implement there with the LTA or maybe, you know, implement with Man City when you get there to get a competitive advantage? Honestly, not in the short term, because I think the situation evolved so rapidly and maybe we should have been more alert to it. Thinking back to the early reports of a new virus coming out of China and it's spreading to Australia in January, you know, during the time of the Australian Open, we should have had a little more foresight as to what might happen to us and be prepared for it. But when it really dawned and we, we came very quickly into lockdown over the space of about a week here in the UK, it suddenly demanded a laser-like focus on how do we set up athletes to train at home? Where can we procure the equipment from that they need in order to be able to do that? And then it was into how do we keep them mentally healthy as well as physically healthy? And then we were into all the stuff we needed to put in place just to allow athletes to come back and train at the National Tennis Centre and then start competing again. So there hasn't really been time to, to get the head up above the parapet and look around and see what others are doing. It's just been, what do we need to do to get our own house in order? However, at the same time, our chief exec has been saying to me, right, Simon, here's our opportunity. 10 years innovation in 10 weeks. How are we going to do that? Businesses are going to move on at a rate of knots like we've, we've not seen before because people have got time. So we've equally been looking again, more inwardly than outwardly, but thinking about what are all the kind of things that we can do to be in the best possible shape to give our players a competitive advantage when, when the, the international tools restart. So things like we know the serve and return is crucial in tennis. 75% of points last less than four shots. Um, you know, and I think if, I want to think of clay, you know, you have long rallies on clay, the dirt ballers. And um, when Joe Conta had a run to the semi-final of the French Open last year, her opponent got a second shot less than 20% of the time on Joe's serve. So serving returns crucial. So we start to say, right, what can we do to accelerate the development of serving women? Because if we can have women that serve consistently fast and accurately, they're going to win a lot of free points or a lot of relatively cheap points and set themselves up for success. And not what does that look like necessarily at the, the elite end of the game, but how can we make sure that our kids get the basic mechanics of a great serve early on? And then how do you nurture and develop that over the years? So, so staff who would normally have been traveling the world with players, we've had focused on things like, what does the perfect mechanics look like for a female serve? And how do you teach that to an 11 year old and then nurture it through the early teenage years so that They've got the fundamentals really well grooved when they get, you know, to mid to late teens to become great servers. So we've we started. That's how we've been thinking about innovating um, during this time and, and looking at what can we do to really move the game on and push some of the technical and tactical boundaries once we could get back to training. That's great. And we, I know Steve wants to jump into the innovation side just in a, in a, in a couple of minutes with a certain question around that. But before, before then, I, I just wanted to ask on, you know, how you've re reflected personally in the last few weeks while this lockdown is going on. You know, you spoke a lot about from an organisational and LTA perspective, but I know you're a big learner. So have you reflected and, and have you focused on anything in particular from a personal development perspective? It's unbelievable, I think, how little time we've actually had for reflection because the pace of which things have moved and the new 
regulations and conditions we've got to had to get our heads around. But, you know, I mean, as a performance director these days, you're not just leading a, a, a small program of athletes. You know, I'm, a, I'm a director of a business. So actually, when, when this first hit and we went into lockdown, my, my first responsibility really was as a director of the LTA rather than the leader of the performance program, which meant I was into supporting the wider executive with budget reforecasting. To ha- how could we create a £20 million pot to invest into ensuring the sustainability of the sport in the UK? So there was still tennis to, tennis to do when we came back out the other side of this. So, you know, we, we created a, a relief package for 500 venues and 100 pro players, 5,000 professional coaches in this country. And, and you know, that dominated a month. And, and you know, it just didn't feel like our, our feet touched the ground for the first month or so because you've got all the mechanisms behind how you do that and how you give loans to venues and, and, and what that means for the business. So, actually, there's not been much time for reflection. And I guess... If I've got two headline lessons, what one is we can do a lot more virtually than we think we can. And that actually we can be really efficient and effective. The number of people I've spoken to that have said, I'm not spending two hours a day, 12 hours a week in the car anymore. So I can actually get stuff done during that time or I can recover and have clearer headspace and think. I think that's one of the reflections will be the balance of how much we really need to travel and how much we really need to be there in the future. And I I used to joke that it's only a matter of time before your tennis coach is a hologram on the court. But I wonder if we're closer to that now than than ever, given, you know, this is a really global sport. It costs a fortune to have, you know, a whole support team traveling around with you. And, you know, maybe it's just the, the manual therapist, the physio or the masseur that will travel with you in the future. And you won't have this whole entourage because, you know, you'll have a hologram of your coach on the court or your strength coach in the gym and they'll actually be more accessible to you. And you won't you won't get fed up of them living in your back pocket for thirty weeks a year. So it'll be an interesting one. It's really interesting. You know, I think uh, I, I I wanna go back to what you one of the things you said and ask ask a follow up question on, you know, this ten years of innovation and in ten weeks concept that you talked about. So now you have your staff who's normally traveling. And one of the effects of COVID is they're not traveling. So now you have this concentrated workforce and this concentrated brain power who can really focus on problem or focus on things that you guys are interested in exploring. How did you decide what was worth focusing on? Because that was, I think, a struggle for a lot of people in the first like five to six weeks of, uh, of COVID, uh, of the shutdown, was like, how, what what work is the most important work to do? And people were just, I mean, I, I talked to GMs and team owners who were literally just taking the problems as they came to them. How did you guys now like really utilize this new opportunity of having this concentrated workforce? And how did you shift through? I mean, you're, you're really big on decision-making and, and how to like pick the right things to work on. How did, how did you kind of approach that in this environment? We looked at two things, uh, where are the risks? And then where are the opportunities? And actually, intuitively, I always prefer to seek the opportunities and go after those and not worry about the risk too much. But in this situation, we, we actually went the other way. And we said, right, what are the risks here? Supposedly, no one can play tennis in full lockdown. So we need to, what are the risks? The risks are people do less, they're more sedentary, they struggle to get access to the, the right food, or they just choose not to eat the right food. So Deconditioning is your biggest threat during this period. So our first focus was really simple. 
how do we ensure that the players can train as functionally and as well and as consistently as possible and that we maintain the right diet? Risk one, we went overdrive on strength and conditioning and nutritional support for the players. Second risk was what if players become demotivated to train or to look after their health? Um, so the mental health risk was next. So we then focused on ensuring that we had the right psychology and lifestyle support in place and that we created communities, again, virtual communities and training communities. We drew up a, a really simple list of who are national coaches, who are strength coaches, who are physios, who are nutritionists and our psychologists would call on a rotor basis. So that it wasn't, you know, 10 people calling them in a day, but across a week you'd have key touch points with not just the player, but their personal coach too. Because, you know, personal coaches' mood goes down, there's the potential for them to drag their player down with them or vice versa, and it becomes a vicious circle. So we regular check-in process and then regular group training sessions. So we'd have everybody on their Watt bikes training online or online Pilates sessions. So as much as we could. So, so risk two was mental health. We got that one covered. And then we started to lift the head up and say, right, where are the opportunities here? And where can we push on? And that comes back to some of the stuff I started to look around, you know, on the serve for the women. Then ultimately to start to say, right, we're coming back to training. How do we ensure everybody's healthy? How do we keep it? How do we graduate it? How do we ensure that we minimize the risk of injury and, and ultimately get things going again? But I, I don't think it's been a particularly difficult one. It, it's such an all-consuming issue and challenge for the world that it's been fairly, fairly simple to manage from that point of view. And the decisions have been quite easy. I think when you look at some sports, you, you can definitely you know, make, make some assumptions that some of them are going to, are going to change relative to trying to finish like last year's season. Um, so formats are going to change. Uh, you're going to have some different things about a few sports. What, is there anything that's going to change about tennis that, that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, obviously, you know, probably less travel, things like that, but is there anything like specifically about the game that you guys have discussed as far as like trying to get tournaments up and running faster and changing formats around the game or changing formats around the way that tournaments are played? Is, is there anything there at all? Is that, that, that you think there might be long-term effects, either positive or negative? Even for an individual sport like tennis, our um, athletes are going to become more autonomous, more independent. They're used to, they've had to stand on their own two feet with less support around them in the last two or three months. And they've learned, they've learned to do that. And I think that will have some lasting effect on how we operate then we're going to see uh, media getting a lot closer to the action than they ever have before. I think particularly behind closed doors competition without the environment and the vibe and the tension that a live crowd and a, and a stadium audience creates, TV's got to find other ways to get you close to the action and to create the, the tension and the, the feeling. So I think we're going to see more things like mics on players, innovative camera stuff, different interview, interviewing coaches during matches. There's, there's, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation from the media that players and coaches are going to have to embrace. I think that will come. Thirdly, I think we're going to see the faster formats of the game come to the fore. So already with our domestic pro events that we're putting on for July and August ahead of maybe international tennis resuming around the time of the US Open, we're already bringing in the fast force format for doubles. You've played a four, if it's three all, you play a 
a tiebreaker at three all, and you play a match tiebreaker if it goes to a settle. So I think you're going to see the faster format of the game become more popular, and it might be that might be part of the media demand as well. So it's uh, I, I'm not sure the format of the game is going to change too much. I think some people will have learned some new stuff during this period because when you tend to just throw athletes on court and it's less regulated as some of the training's been because we can't have the number of staff in the building that we, we would normally. Players innovate. They make things up. They try things. You know, we're going to see some new shots. We're going to see some different patterns of play emerge just from players having a time where there's no competitive pressure and no Im- imminent tournament on the horizon. So they just experiment. So I think you're going to see some things like that happen. And, and in the same way that when T20 was introduced into cricket and you saw the ramp shot and various other stuff suddenly come to the fore, players have got a playground at the moment and they're going to be having fun trying new things out. And we'll see some funky stuff, I'm pretty sure, on the court in the next few months. And that's a great point there too, right? Because a lot of the really great innovations actually end up coming from players if you give them the freedom just to go out there and, and be themselves sometimes. Um and uh, and if you, if you stop and listen and learn learn from them, then uh, a lot of times that ends up leading it. You're a true sportsman. Um, you know, you're a huge American football fan. That's how you and I first met. Staying on how other sports could potentially change. Is there anything that that you would use COVID? Uh, any changes you would um, use COVID as kind of like a catalyst for changing something about American football? Uh, association football, cricket. What? What? You're always thinking about the future. What? What are some of the things in other sports that might need to change? Just as a fan, wouldn't it be great if an NFL game was like the kind of two-minute drill for the 60 minutes? So you know, you take out timeouts. You know, you reduce the play clock down to 15 or 20 seconds, and you know, you've got the players, you know, running up to the line to get set for the next play. And it just became a little bit more free-flowing and a little bit less scripted. I think that would be a fascinating change. I mean, I'd love to talk Brady and Gronk to the Bucks with you, but that's probably another conversation another day, isn't it? Not for a podcast. Um, maybe that's an innovation. Who knows? It's gonna, It presents people with a lot of challenges. I think we're going to go back in many sports 10, 20 years in terms of the degree of support that people can afford to give to athletes moving forward because you know there's going to be less revenue coming into sport probably for the next one to three to five years as global business tries to recover some of the hospitality and sponsorship revenues that we're used to getting. The advertising revenues may well take a big hit. So that will knock on to teams, you know, the, the number of coaches they can afford to employ, the number of scientists and medics they can afford to employ. You know, will we see a shrinking in specialist coaches around athletes? Will we see fewer scientists around players? And, and, and therefore, we'll have to be more innovative about the way that we coach and train because a smaller number of people have to cover the same number of bases, for want of a better word. So I think there's, it's going to be interesting to see how things emerge moving forward and, and what we look like. We're going to have to be agile. We're going to have to be really flexible and, and innovative in, in the way we go about business, for sure. What do you think is going to happen, Steve? What, what's your take on the big impact on sport and innovations that we might see as a consequence of this? I think definitely like this is an accelerant, not like a you know complete disruptor. You know, it's it's some of the some of the um, accelerations in in macro trends that we were all looking at. We're probably going to end up um, accelerating a little bit more. I do think like we're going to get back. We're going to have to get back to like the core of what really makes sport special, which is 
you know, the athlete and the coach in that relationship. Um, and that relationship is going to have to evolve because of a lot of the things you just, you just kind of talked about. I think it's just an opportunity for athletes to take a little bit more of an ownership around their, their training, probably a little bit more ownership around how they personal ownership and not like abdicating to like their agent or their branding team, like who they are. So I'm hopeful that I think like one of the things we talk about all the time in sports is the personalization, the advent of personalization, whether that's personalized training programs that are being driven through better data collection around training and your, your output and your competitions, all the way to personalization of coaching. You know, in personalization of coaching, you can definitely link that to personalization of education tech. We all now know, all of us who have kids, we all now know that like the way like normal classroom teaching breaks if you put it into a Zoom room and it's not good. So we're going to have to learn better models on teaching and we're going to have to get better, frankly, distribution points for how we how we interact digitally if, if you want people to actually retain things, Right. So that will end up influencing education tech that will now roll downstream and will end up hitting coaching and coaching development as a broader industry. And sports is one of the main segments inside of that. And so I think you'll start to see coaches are going to have to be so much better and they've gotten so much better. Like I've been in rooms with coaches for teams and I've watched them kind of evolve their ability to describe things and to really communicate because if you're in a room with an NFL player, it's really easy to like get up and be very physical in order to describe a technique that you want a player to actually commit to, whether they're like a defensive lineman coming off the line or, or a quarterback on a, on a step. But if you have to actually communicate it, you have to refine the way that you think about the athletic action and then you have to be better at describing it. Right. So I think things like that will end up, I, I think a lot of, I think we're going to, I think we're going to probably actually get better at our jobs in the long run. But I do think like a, it's going to be an accelerant around the way we communicate, the way that we teach people, education is going to definitely change, I think, over the course of the next 10 years. And and that's going to have a huge effect. Like here in the United States, like one of the things, and I don't want to get off on too much of a diatribe, but you look at tier three schools here in the United States, there's a really good chance that they're going to be constrained greatly by the fact that in the fall, you're not going to have as many, you're not going to have as many students going to school physically, right? So Tier one schools are going to have to get into their wait list. Tier two schools are then going to have to get into their wait list. And tier three schools are going to be left with lower enrollments. And if that ends up happening, what happens to all those kids who are playing sports? Because the very first thing that's going to end up going are going to be athletic programs. Athletic programs at smaller schools here in the United States are going to be, are really, are really, I think, under threat. And so now I think what will end up happening is going back to personalization. I think you might start seeing some more private academies that now move from high school age to collegiate age. And those academies can end up now really leveraging and utilizing this whole idea of personalization of training as a way to potentially start to control the way that, you know, 18 year olds to 22 year olds are are trained here in the United States, very similarly to the way that, you know, football academies in, in Europe approach it. So, I don't know. I think there's going to be, I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, next 10 years dictated strongly on what happens over the course of the next two years. So, so do you see and foresee you know, places like IMG Academy in Bradenton becoming more and more normal and more and more influential in the, the kind of US athlete development market, for want of better words, and that almost high schools and colleges become 
less relevant in some ways and that it becomes increasingly privatized? I think there's a really good chance of that happening. Yes. I think it's it's a while until people actually put the pieces together, but I think there's a really good chance of that happening. A lot I mean, a lot of it's gonna be dictated on what happens to smaller schools here in the US. And in, in, in I'm talking about like, you know, any everything from NAIA, Division Two, you know, lower lower FBS schools who have small endowments. Someone's gonna have to step up and figure out how to train. And, and where to allow kids who are playing sports if you're a 19-year-old or 20-year-old and, you know, you can't play sports at the school you want to go to because they don't have an athletic program anymore. Or that school may not even exist because of, uh, of the fact that their endowment was so small and they can no longer enroll enough students to actually pay for all the teachers they in, in the programs that they have to pay for. And so what, what, what may end up happening is you may end up having some you know, investors uh, and some people get together and decide, hey, this is actually what we could do is we could end up essentially creating a private academy like IMG. We can professionalize this. If you get a uh, if you get if you get either TV revenues or some you, you need to you need to bolster it through some sort of revenue stream. Right. But if you could figure that out, then you could create. I mean, honestly, I think what you could end up creating is you could end up creating basically really highly specialized athletic technical trade schools. So you bring in a bunch of kids, you have them play, you know, four sports. Let's say it's American football, association football, basketball and tennis, you know, for argument's sake. So you have this you have this really robust academy where you can have you could develop your athletes. All right. Very similar to IMG, but it's just further down the stream and it's closer to the professional ranks. And then instead of giving getting like liberal arts degrees or you know, just kind of, you know, plotting their way through, you know, getting a, a, a degree that, you know, allows at a university that they're at right now that allows them to basically just play maximum amounts of sports. We can give them very highly specialized degrees around everything from coding and, uh, you know, technology and data, although data science, um, all the way to like, you know, actually training them how to be coaches later on in their life. So imagine, like Simon, like Simon, imagine if we actually taught kids who were in an academy how to be coaches later on, right? And we actually created like a coaching PhD. Imagine how much better our youth athlete development system would be in 20 years if now after they got done playing sports, they went back in and they went into communities and they were literally professional coaches. How much better would our youth athlete system be across the board? And all. And or how much better would our elite coaches be? You know, because I think, you know, you mentioned teaching earlier. And I think there's, there's two challenges for elite coaching in sports, certainly in the UK at the moment. You know, if, if you go back to the, the late 80s, early 90s, when I was growing up, my coaches were all PE teachers because there weren't careers in sport. There weren't professional coaching jobs in sport in the UK in those days, you know, so invariably you'd have PE teachers who became the elite coaches and they usually became an elite coach because they happened to have an elite athlete. But they, they were fundamentally grounded in teaching and learning theory and they, they were great coaches and they understood the person in front of them. And, and today what you've got is a mixture of retired elite athletes and sports scientists and, and sometimes the two coming together. You know, an athlete that's done a sports science degree whilst they were on the their career, the early part of their career journey, and then they become a coach. And, and they understand the physiological and the psychological demands of the, the sport brilliantly, but they don't necessarily have those teaching and learning fundamentals behind how they coach. And we need to bring that back 
in into elite coaching. And I do I do think to some degree what you're describing is more like the system in the UK. You know, certainly from a tennis point of view, we've got two national academies at great schools that are developing the person and the player. You know, person first approach, lots of personal development, lots of future career development, transitional support, that kind of stuff. That's what we did and, and cricket is still doing, you know, with, with England under 17s and under 19s, the kids would all take coaching qualifications. They would have a personal development and enrichment program that was all about self-started, self-delivered, for want of better words, charity campaigns. So, for example, if we were touring India in the winter, they would raise money for an Indian charity and they would then plan the activities and they would run a one or two day program of cricket activities for underprivileged kids in in India. So they, they were developing those rounded, more rounded skills and how to contribute more widely to the sport and their communities once they've finished playing. And I think that also helps develop more resilient people. That our, our athletes become more resilient people and more resilient people are more resilient performers on the field of play. So there's huge benefits all round. And I do think society is going to demand more and more and more of us from that moving forward. And it's been fantastic to see in the last week, the sport I currently work in, tennis, so many of our tennis players standing up in response to, to what happened to George Floyd and, and, and speaking so clearly and articulately. You know, I mean, you think about a sport here that's really been at the forefront of male and female equality and, and equal prize money and, and two of the highest earners, uh, you know, Serena Williams, uh, Naomi Osaka, and then Coco Goff. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Coco Goff's speech that she did. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, it's so resonated with me, you know. Use your voice no matter how big or small your platform, I think she said. And, and then she quoted, silence of, the, of good people is worse than the brutality of bad people. And, and, and I, I thought for a 16-year-old to, to stand up and talk in a situation like this, you know, was just inspiring. You know, she, she said, you know, this is your fight too. You know, if you, if, you, if you have black friends or you listen to black music, you know, this is your fight too. It's not just about, about a, a small group of people or a small section of society. This is all of our issue. And, and I think it's been inspiring to see our athletes for too long you know we said you know spawn politics don't mix and in in many situations we don't want them to but i think in a situation like this it, it, it's entirely appropriate it's been been fantastic to see athletes and and you know coaches speaking out as they have in recent days so i've totally changed can, the subject there guys no 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 it, i could i couldn't couldn't agree more. I thought it was incredibly inspiring what, what Coco said. And, and I think you're right. I think we'd have to be a bit tone deaf not to touch upon the topic of equality. And we are recording this uh, the week after the tragedy involving George Floyd. So I wanted to ask you as, as a leader uh, within a diverse industry and a diverse sport, how you think um, you, know, you can support this new movement and create and, and prom- promote opportunities to end uh, any inequality issues that you know has existed within in sport, you know, definitely since you've been working in it and, and for much longer than that. So have you got any ideas or have you had any thoughts as, as a leader how you can make an impact? I think as Coco Goff said, it, it starts with our voice and speaking up and speaking out. Uh, and But then also, it's even more importantly, possibly, it's our actions too. It's not just about civil justice, it's about equality, it's about diversity, it's about valuing 
everybody around us and about valuing what we have and, and, and our culture and our ethics and, and everything that we hold dearly. And we, we need to stand up for that. And as leaders, I think, in sport, we need to, to recognise the generations that we have responsibility for to nurture and support. And particularly for our elite athletes, we need to give them a, a, a psychologically safe environment in which to speak out on issues like this. You know, we need to ensure that athletes like Coco Golf feel safe and comfortable expressing their views and help them to do it in, in a positive, constructive way that will inspire others to do the right things and to live the right values in, in their daily lives. And I think that's part of our job. You know, we, we probably sometimes as the leaders and the coaches have a smaller voice than our high profile athletes. We need to have our voice heard too, but we need to support our athletes to, to be able to do that in a safe, constructive way without any fear of the, the being censored or, or not supported. Because, you know, there, there will be people out there that want to um, fire back at our athletes on social media. And, and you know, we, we've seen too many athletes be trolled and we've seen too many athletes suffer with their mental health as a result. So we need to be there for them. And we need to support them and we need to speak with them with one voice. Very well said. No, I completely agree. And, and, one word that comes to mind with all this is alignment, um, you know, alignment of thoughts, alignment of organisations, but people within those organisations think, think and say, and, and not necessarily on, on, on that topic specifically, but I know that you think about alignment a lot within an organisation and how that, you know, alignment is dependent on, on success. So how, how much have you thought about that at your time with the LTA? Uh, and can you elaborate on, on why you think it's so important that, you know, you need an aligned organization no matter what the topic to make you know as, as that's a platform for success if you will it's, it's quite an abrupt change of direction from equality and diversity and, and and ultimately you know we've talked a lot already on on this podcast about sport potentially facing lower revenues lower incomes less resource available to support and develop our athletes and our teams you need two things. You need financial resource to be able to bring together an elite group of athletes and staff and deliver extraordinary results and to push the boundaries of performance in whatever your sport is. That has a pounds or dollars cost associated with it, and that's unavoidable. Second thing you need is, is, is you need unity and a, and a platform from which to, to innovate and to drive and to strive to succeed. And, and alignment is crucial to both of those things because at the end of the day, you're going to be responsible to a, a chief executive or an executive vice president or president and a board of directors that are going to sign off the pounds and dollars that you need to build your team and to pull your team onto the field of play and allow it to perform with excellence. And secondly, you're going to need their support and you're going to want, you're going to want their help rather than constant challenge or interference. And you're much more likely to get those if you've got alignment of goals and objectives um, you've got a clear plan that everybody's agreed to and signed up to and that everybody knows their role in feeding in to that plan and the delivery of it and supporting it and that's why I really believe in in alignment and I often describe it as having an organizational backbone that runs from if you like the chairman of the board through the chief executive to the performance director, the head coach, the position coaches or the specialist coaches and the scientists and the medics and the athletes. And that's your backbone. And each of those are a, each of those levels are a vertebra. And if one of those is out and it pinches the nerve, you're in a whole lot of pain. And any of you that have had, you know, back problem or a herniated disc know how much that hurts and how difficult it is to get rid of. So you've got to keep working hard to align that backbone of your organization so that nothing pinches on the nerve. 
And everybody's time and effort and focus can go into what it takes to win on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis if you're going to sustain success and deliver over the long term. At the end of the day, you'll do it more efficiently and you'll do it for less money and everybody will have a good time doing it, hopefully. And, and, and therefore, the organization will be that much more fulfilled and a better place to be. In a nutshell, that's why I believe in alignment. It's why, you know, the first part of my job is always, you know, what can I do to help ensure that that vertebra, the organizational backbone is aligned and stays aligned um, so that we, we can all focus and, and work in one direction? When you think about alignment, you know, you're, you're, uh, and this is, this is no, this is no big, big news break or anything like that. You're, you're going to be, you're making a transition here pretty soon. And when you think about alignment, you think about going in there and, and first year for Man City, especially underneath these, these circumstances right now. Um, how, how are you thinking about that transition right now? And, and how have you been preparing yourself for it? I was really hoping that I'd have a nice, easy glide out of uh, the LTA and British tennis <laughs> and uh, a bit of a holiday, some time to think and plan and prepare. And of course, COVID-19 has got in the way of all of that. And I've, I've never been busier. And, and actually, I've really enjoyed the, the, the leadership challenge of the last few months and, and working with a great executive team at the LTA. And, and I've, I've got a fantastic senior management team in, in performance too. And we've, we've done a great job of rising to the challenge and supporting our players. So I haven't had as much time as I'd hoped to, to think about Manchester City and to prepare. And certainly, you know, at this point in a transition previously in my career, I'd have been in, in sponge mode and just soaking up everything I can about the culture of the organisation I'm going to join, how it operates on a day-to-day basis, what its aspirations and, it, and its hopes are, you know, what people think it does really well, where, where are some of the challenges maybe, you know, just to start to get a feel for, for the context I'm going to land in. Because I do think in, understanding your context is crucial. You can't assume what I did somewhere else and, and how we were successful somewhere else is going to make us be successful here. And, and I firmly believe that past success is no guarantee of future success. It simply creates expectations. And often those are wildly inaccurate and unreasonable too. You, know, you have to manage the expectations. So really, you know, I'd have loved to have been drinking a lot of coffee with people, getting to know them, spend a few days around the City Football Academy and, and getting to know the staff and the players. But of course, COVID-19 means I can't do that. So I've just spent as much time as I can on Teams calls, Zoom calls, getting to, to know people, just trying to get to know the person behind the role and the job and what makes them tick, their hopes, their aspirations, their fears, and just getting to know a little bit about them. And I don't, I don't think I can hope to do much more than that in the, in the current situation. One thing it has done is made me even more excited about joining Man City because They've just got a fantastic group of people with huge intellect and you know they've already been hugely successful. And I think there's, there's a great platform there to sustain that for years to come and I, I can't wait to be part of it. We're going to wrap up here in a second, but before we do, I want to, you are a really well-read human being. I'm sure you've spent, you've, you've had less reflection time, as you said, over COVID. I know you, uh, you are definitely a consumer of uh, of brain food though. So is there anything that you've either watched, read, or listened to recently where we have some of, uh, you know, a lot of the people who are, who are listening to this right now, they're trying to develop themselves. And so is there anything that you can pass on to, uh, to our listeners that, uh, that they should feed their brains here in, over the next couple of weeks as we, as we ramp up to, uh, to sports restarting? I mean, obviously I've watched the last dance like 
I think every other human <laughs> being on the planet with an interest in sport. One of the problems of having young kids is they they seriously eat into your reading time and you know you finish work, <laughs> you look after the kids, you get them into bed and I think you just flake out. You know, I face plant on my bed and that, that used to be my reading time. But what, what this period has done is it's allowed me to start reading the Bill Belichick biography by uh, Ian O'Connor again. And I've kind of picked it up. And there's a, there's a really interesting chapter about his departure from the New York Giants when he was OC and how the then GM of the Giants just didn't think Bill had the charisma to be a head coach uh, and the reasons why. And it just made me really reflect on what we think good looks like. What do we really know about people? What makes them tick? How they operate? And what delivers success? And often, you know, the, the, there are people that meet our vision of what a great leader looks like or a great coach looks like, or they don't. But actually, it's the interaction of their beliefs, their traits, their behaviors, and the environment that they're in. And often, we just need to manipulate the environment and support people a bit differently in order to allow them to thrive and flourish. And I think, you know, reading that book has just really reminded me of that, that there was a guy who didn't see the potential in Belichick. Clearly, the guys in Cleveland did, but the environment was wrong. And then, of course, you know, things all come together in, in uh, New England in a completely different way. And, and look at where they are now. What, nine Super Bowls, six titles. Can't wait to see what happens this year. Steve, I'm trying to get you back onto the NFL and chatting to me about American football again. But, you know, <laughs> well, hey, um, yeah, we great, book, great book. Great book. Highly recommend it. it. Yeah, we we could follow up with that one. We could do a we could do a whole NFL a whole NFL uh, series. I I think this year in the NFL is going to be fascinating, really really fascinating because teams that have a real intellectual competitive advantage, both on the players and then also on the on the on the on the talent and then also on the coaching side, I think they're going to have a window. They're going to have a window to make a little bit of headway, and, and maybe those are the teams that are already really good. And I think that actually might end up being the case. Yeah, teams teams are going to have to really do a heck of a job to to for in, for injury mitigation and for all sorts of things. It's going to be a wild and crazy year, I think. It brings me back to your earlier point about people getting really good at teaching and explaining their concepts and being able to do it remotely, you know, over video. Because those rookies coming in this year, the guys that have been drafted, are going to have so much less physical hands-on training time. Um, the teams that can simplify their schemes, that can explain them really clearly, keep it simple for the players, help the players learn to, to make good decisions for themselves uh, based on what they see emerging in front of them on the field uh, are going to be the ones, I think, that succeed. And it's going to be less about raw talent and game planning and scheming and because you just don't have the same time with the players to install those concepts that might normally happen. So that would be fascinating. Ready to yeah, go on autopilot? Bucks in the Super Bowl? Is it happening? Uh, no. Bucks won. <laughs> <laughs> That's just... But who knows? They, I mean, they can make the Super Bowl. I would say they can make the Super Bowl, but... Uh, but I, I wouldn't, I would, I, you know, I wouldn't put it as likely. But Simon, um, let's let's have a beer and let's talk some NFL um, and let's talk some uh, some broader sport here uh, shortly. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. I know you're very busy. So thanks for giving up the time. Um, and I'm sure I'll speak to you beforehand. But good luck on the move to Man City as well. So thanks for your time, Simon. 
Thanks, Matt. Look forward to it. And Steve, great to chat. Speak to you soon, hopefully, in person with a beer. That'd be great. Nice one. Cheers. That's it for another At Home with Leaders episode. But you can find this podcast as well as all the others that we create on the Leaders Content Hub, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred platform. Simon and his staff at the LTA are part of the membership network, and so are his future employers, City Football Group. So if you want to watch all the content have access to the network and the learning and our events like them, then head over to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to learn about the home of Total High Performance. As always, thank you to John Porch and the team for putting these podcasts together behind the scenes. You're always doing a terrific job, so thank you. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon. <laughs>